got a little time. And we've got a little crime. Hey, it's old-timey crimey, and we have graduated from trying to make a college answering machine circa 2000 to fair use borrowing the intros of other podcasts on which I am a (laughs) (laughs) co-host. So those who also listen to Short Story Short Podcast might recognize that. So... Yes, this is Old Timey Crimey. We're here this week with your historical true crime. We're going to tell you a tale of a train robbery in which the bandits probably could have done a lot better job. <laughs> they did okay on some things. They did okay. They did okay. They, they missed the big stuff, though. That's all right. So, it happens. Before we get into that, don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes, as always. And you can come over there and find all of our offerings. We have over a hundred of our old tiny crimeys, which are, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes. But lately, it's been pretty standard at at about half an hour. Mm -hmm. All right. So, you want to talk about a train robbery? I do indeed. Okay. Let's talk about the great train robbery of 1915. The Beckley Rally Register called it Quote, the boldest and biggest robbery ever pulled off this side of the wild and wooly west. End quote. (laughs) Wooly. Wooly. Who knew it was so wooly out west? I had no idea. I did not know that either. (laughs) And uh, perhaps they're the only ones to describe it as such. (laughs) Might just be. On October 8th, 1915, this is in Doddridge County, West Virginia, in the early morning hours. A Baltimore and Ohio, or B&O, number one passenger train was heading from New York to St. Louis, and it stopped to take on water at the Central Station stop around 1.45 a.m., then headed up the track to continue on its journey. A few minutes later, two masked figures crawled over the tender. All right, so I'm going to describe how the train would most likely have been set up just for this moment and for future reference, because I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the word tender. I was not. You have, of course, the locomotive. Naturally, it would have been a steam locomotive. That's why they had to stop to take on water. You need water for the steam. And behind the locomotive would have been the tender, and that's where the water would have been stored. It carries the fuel and water. And then behind that would have been the mail car, From most accounts, I believe this train also had an express car that was behind the mail car. And the express car carried packages. And then behind that would have been all of the passenger cars. So you have locomotive, tender, mail car, express car, and then a line of passenger cars. Probably a decent sized one for that route. These two masked figures crawl over the tender, approaching the engine. And the engineer, whose name was Grant Helms, and the fireman, C.R. Knight, they were hard at work because the train was working its way up a long hill. This was an odd quote I got from the Doddridge County Republican. Helms made a pass at one of the men, thinking that someone was playing a joke on him, but his illusion was quickly shattered. And I don't fully understand what's happening there, because I think the words made a pass changed in the years since. Yeah, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe took a swipe at him, 
Like, oh, you lovable scamp, you. Probably try to smack his ass. Good job, man. Good <laughs> yeah, job. there you go. Yeah, the, the football butt smacking. <laughs> and now his illusion was shattered because both of the men had 38 caliber guns that they then pointed at the engineer and the fireman, ordering them to turn around to face the engine and stop the train about a half a mile down the track at a place called Rock Cut. And the masked men also made it clear, of course, that if the engineer and the fireman didn't do as they were told, they would be killed. The train gets to the requested stopping point at Rock Cut, and it stops. Moving from the engine back to the mail car, in there, the clerk in charge and his two assistants answered a knock at the door. And they think maybe it's another employee telling them why they've stopped you know, just bringing the news, yeah. letting you know. Wrong! It's another masked man, gun in hand, who asks them some questions, specifically trying to figure out who is the clerk in charge. That is Charles Haynes Huff, and he identifies himself as such. And so mail car masked men then sends the two assistants out of the train, where another masked man is waiting for them and sends them to the passenger cars. And he says he didn't want to hurt them. Also tossed a coat out for one of the assistants and told him to make himself comfortable. It seems very polite, though, all things considered. It's chilly. Here, have a coat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> late at night in October. Yeah, yeah. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. So uh, make yourself comfortable. Also kind of telling him it might be a while. <laughs> The fireman is sent to the back of the mail car to uncouple it from the express car. Make note of that. And then he's packed off to the passenger car also. So now you have the fireman and the two assistants back in the passenger car. And the clerk in charge is with one of the masked men. Well, and the gunman also warned him to close the air valve on the mail car before lifting the lever to break the coupling. It was very apparent that these guys at least knew something about trains. Yeah, they knew, uh, they knew some shit. <laughs> they had some knowledge coming into this. They uncouple the mail car and forward from the rest of the cars going back. So now you have two separate parts of the train. You have the engine, the tender, and the mail car separate going up the track or in a minute. And you have the express car and the passenger cars sitting stationary because they don't have a locomotive. And it's kind of hard to move. All right, everybody get out and push. Yeah, right? <laughs> Hope you've been eating your Wheaties. So the bandits have these cars separate. And they have engineer Helms and clerk in charge Huff. And each of these men has one masked man holding a gun on him. They have the engineer take the cars a half mile further down the track. And during this time, clerk in charge Huff is being interrogated by his assigned masked man as to the location of the Washington packages and the three packages of money on the mail car. So Huff shows him some pouches, but the bandits seem to have a better idea, actually, of what he's looking for. There were some letters... The clerks had been entering into their records, probably containing money. And the bandit opened a few and he's like, oh, okay, this is it. This, this is the thing. Here we are. And then 
this is kind of when it becomes clear to everybody that three thieves hijacked the train. A third masked man walks up to check on them when the clerk in charge was just about to move from one car to another. Then they had the engineer stop the locomotive, the engine. They kicked him and the clerk in charge off the train and said, you guys stay put and we're going to just head out now on the train. <laughs> the part that moves and you guys can just stay here stranded. The masked man hop on the train and it really seems like there's some knowledge here, like you said, again, from the Dod Doddridge City Republican. I keep on wanting to say Dodge City for obvious reasons, because <laughs> this is very Wild West. Quickly mounting the cab, one of them pulled the throttle with the apparent skill of a master, and the little mechanism on the engine recorded a 45-mile speed to the top of Duckworth Hill. Then they slowed down to 28 miles per hour, and then it seems like the bandits turned off the engine. I'm putting quotes around that because I don't exactly know what the terminology of the day was. Or they turned off the steam. And they hopped off the train and let it run. And it ended up stopping near the next water station. It was also stated after looking at the self-recording tapes that marked the engine's speed that, quote, the engine's speed while it was in the robber's hands is one of the cleanest and straightest ever made on the grade indicating a master hand at the throttle. But here's the thing. You have fewer cars. You only have the, the locomotive, the tender, and the mail car. You don't have a whole bunch of other weight behind you as you normally would going up that hill with a passenger train. So it's probably a lot easier. I think they're making a little bit more of the skill involved. I'm not saying they didn't have skill. I just think they're making a bigger deal out of it. Well, I, I think what was most impressive, though, is basically, from what I took from it, was they maintained a speed going up a hill that's usually a difficult track to drive on. I know that's not right. <laughs> um, but it, it's difficult to maintain speed with that much weight going upwards. And I think that that was why it was so impressive. But still, they had far fewer weight than most trains going up they that did. hill would. They did, but it was only two cars, and I, I think it just kind of shows that whoever this was that did this had driven a train before. Yeah, they at least have some practice. Yeah. They make it out like they're the engineer of engineers. They're amazing. <laughs> they're the best engineers ever. I feel like whoever was doing the report got like half a chub. They're <laughs> like, oh my God, look how straight this is. This is such a sexy climb up the hill. Sexy train climbing. <laughs> Episode subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> Initial reports about how much money the bandits got away with were kind of guarded at first. And really, there was a good reason for that. No one could be certain until the banks that the money was going to reported the shortfall. You know, we don't know how much money is missing because they were still in the process of recording it. So we don't have actual records, full records to account for how much we have. But the banks were expecting a certain amount. Once they don't get that amount, they'll tell us, then we'll know. But Treasury officials at first speculated that $500,000 in unsigned banknotes, that's $14 million today. Wow. As well as $1 million in reserve banknotes that was eventually supposed to make its way to Dallas was potentially missing. And that uh, is obviously $28 million today because, you know, just multiplied times two. There was an express car that I mentioned with $2 million on it that went untouched. And that is... $56 million today. So think about that. 
they uncoupled the mail car from the express car and left that $2 million just sitting there. Lucky for whoever insures the train. Unlucky for them. Yeah, right? And so now you think about this and you're like, okay, that's a shit ton of money. Yeah. On this train. Guards. And I have to thank my, uh, I have a relative who is what is known as a rail fan. And so I called them up to get a little bit more clarity on all of this. And they were the ones who, who actually brought up guards because I wrote this entire 10 pages of notes and never thought, wouldn't somebody be guarding this money? One would think. <laughs> One yeah. would think. But it would likely be hired guns. So maybe not an official security service. Maybe they could have been in cahoots or some sort of associates of the gang who said, well, we'll just look the other way. You do your thing. Maybe toss us a few bucks. Or there are signs here and there, such as in the questions about the Washington packages, that the gang or someone in the gang had friends in high places who let them know that there would be a high-value train going on the New York to St. Louis route with no guards. If they were, like, trying to sneak it through. It it certainly seems like they definitely had some insider information, if not a person on the inside that was helping them with this. Yeah, it does seem like there's there's a high probability of that. The officials are trying to straighten out how much money was lost on this possibly unguarded train. And they check out the clerk in charge's reports and said that likely the bandits had taken 500,000 to 1 million, but also said that they may have taken less than 35,000. So it's like one or the other. And if that was the case, quote, for the first time in human history, perhaps, bandits were confronted with more millions of cash than they cared to take. (laughs) And I don't think that's the case. I just think that they maybe screwed up a little bit. It's not like they were like, oh, that's too much money. Nobody has ever said that. They really either didn't realize it was there, which is pretty likely. They just didn't realize it was there. Or they thought they had it all and left the rest behind. I think that they didn't realize that the money was possibly split between the mail car and the express car. Otherwise, they would have taken the express car with them. Yeah. It's even possible. I'm totally just spitballing here, honestly. But a theory I have is that the mail cars were more frequent targets because that was where most of the money was. Perhaps they had started keeping some money, especially the high value amount in the express car, because that's kind of a stealthier place not as frequent as a target or harder to find it if you have a whole bunch of packages. Yeah. It's not out there in the open being counted and recorded and everything by the clerk and his assistants. Somebody records it all beforehand, puts it in the express car, and what do you know? They only take the mail car. There you go. So it did later come out that they had not taken the $1 million in reserve banknotes. In the end, when all is said and done and counted, they took 102000 is the most frequent figure I saw, or $2.9 million today. So it's still quite a haul. Yeah, it's still a lot of money. It's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, why you would sneeze at money is beyond me, but people are weird, so. Yeah, people are weird. I'll agree with that. Back at the train, the fireman had apparently decided that he'd really rather not sit around and wait at the passenger car, as the bandits had ordered him to, And so after he uncoupled the train cars for them, he just took off down the track for the station where they last stopped to pick up water. He managed to make the, I I gauged it at about a mile, 
run in about 15 minutes. So pretty decent. I yeah. mean, it's dark. <laughs> it's probably rocky ground, maybe uneven ground. And he tells the night operator at Central Station to flash the news of the train robbery up and down the line. And then, back with the engineer clerk in charge, these guys, there's also a watchman. So we do have a watchman. I don't know if he, if he was on the train or if he came from another station, because he just kind of appears. But it took them about three hours to recover the engine and the mail car. The fire was low. It was nearly out of water, which makes me think that they didn't turn off the steam. Because otherwise, how would it run out of water? Yeah. But after about an hour and a half, they managed to get it going again. And they were recoupled to the passenger cars and back on the tracks by 6.30 a.m. Which is, I mean, you just got held at gunpoint. And half of your train was stolen. And they were like, we got it back. Keep going. You're late. And you, really, they were also holding up the other trains because while they're on that track, no train can come that way. Yeah, they're stuck. Of course, authorities are notified and they're on the lookout for the bandits. They've got the U.S. Marshal. Sheriffs in five counties are gathering up posses. Police in towns for 100 miles away are told to be on the lookout. They bring in bloodhounds who searched the area for three days, but... This is, seems to be a pretty low-crime area. The bloodhounds hadn't worked in months. They were a little out of practice. They really were ended up being pretty useless. I was going to ask about that because one of my sources has the dogs refused to take up any trail whatever. I'm sure it was supposed to be whatsoever, but somebody was getting a little snotty when they were typing it. They refused to take up any trail whatever. Yeah, that's, that's how I read it. I was just like... Okay. Stupid bloodhounds. I don't even care about you. Yeah, the dogs were like, no, fuck this. <laughs> exactly. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, they just, they were out of practice. They couldn't really do it anymore. So then we have a note that Miss Duckworth told railroad detectives that she'd seen a man in the woods by her house. She had Duckworth Farm, and this was near Duckworth Hill that this happened. And the man, he kind of looked like maybe he was camping, staying in the woods. She'd actually seen him getting water for his coffee pot. That little tidbit had detectives running all over West Virginia and just cosplaying the crap out of it. It's, it's old-timey cosplay we've got going on here. Yeah. They're dressing up as peddlers, as tramps. So I have a whole bit about Miss Duckworth. Okay. So I had found... On, I think it was like a, a heritage website. Like a genealogy site? Yeah. So I have a whole story about Miss Duckworth and how she came across these gentlemen. Awesome. So this is two or three days before this robbery took place. Miss Duckworth is walking her dog. The dog darts through a thick hedgerow on a game trail. And instead of calling for the dog, yelling like, hey, Fido, come back. She just goes to grab him. And she sees through the bushes as she's grabbing her dog, some people. She went back with her dog and then she comes back alone and peeps again just to make sure she's seeing everything correctly. And she studies their faces carefully. Ooh. So she sees all three of them and thought they might be up to some mischief. She goes back to get their descriptions and study their faces, and then she goes and she tells her father. 
just like that. They're, they're camping out there. I think they're up to no good. I'm not sure what's going on, but there are three of them. This is what they look like. This is where they are. And the Duckworths just lock their doors for the next few nights. They're like, well, okay, we know that somebody's nearby. We don't know that they're a threat. So we'll just lock the doors to be safe. And they did nothing. And then it like gets into the story. But I, I just thought that was so neat because it has her whole little story of like how she's walking her dog and she stumbles upon them and she takes the dog back because she doesn't want to give up her, her position and comes back out stealthy-like. So that was my little bit on Jennery Duckworth. Ah, we have a first name, finally. I didn't see any accounts that gave her first name. So Jennery Duckworth. I like her. She's got moxie. She does. <laughs> Super secret spy Jennery Duckworth. Yes. All these railroad detectives and marshals and everybody searching and looking for, I believe, 11 months before there actually is a worthwhile tip that starts leading them in a more fruitful direction, shall we say. And that tip is about kind of a shopping spree. Down in San Antonio, there's a woman who didn't normally have the funds to be extravagant, just splashing out all over the place. She's buying this, she's buying that, she's buying the other thing even. This, that, and the other thing. Exactly. All of the things. All of the things. And there was also something odd about the bills she was using to make these purchases. Some of them were unsigned, and others were signed with a stamp. Now... I believe all the bills that had been stolen from the train were unsigned. And here's how this worked back then. Large bills would have four signatures. They were printed with the signatures of the Register of the Treasury and the Treasurer of the United States already on them. Much like today, we have those on our bills. But then they would get to the issuing bank, and that bank's cashier and president would also sign them prior to being issued. So between printing and getting to the bank that would issue them, they would be considered unsigned because they don't have the issuing bank's signatures. The detectives start asking around San Antonio about the woman who's, who's all super spendy all over the place with all the things. And they're directed to the sister of a local guy. His name is Charles Jefferson Harrison. He's also known as Jeff. He was a local blacksmith and owned a shop that also it seems like kind of was dual purpose, did some auto repair. You know, it was the... the yeah, or machine repair, I saw mm. it too. So it was the Taco Bell Pizza Hut of, of the 1910s. Yeah. He, he would fix things. He had a lot of tools and he could fix things. Yeah, yeah. Seemed pretty pretty handy guy. Detectives followed him around San Antonio for a bit. And then they arrest him and then they start searching the shop. And sure enough... They find a bunch of money, either in the floor or uh, under, I think, a gas tank. Yeah, there was a report that it was $50,000 under a gas tank. And there's another report, and the more common report is that it was $28,000 in a glass jar buried under the floor. And then one other report I saw had 33000 So we can see how uh, sources vary wildly. I haven't done that in a little while. <laughs> Good times. At first, Harrison told them his name was Jim Bohannon. Jim Bohannon. That's an interesting alias. Because it could either be... It's Jimbo Hannon yeah. or Jim Bohannon. Exactly. Exactly. 
But soon enough, they figure out his actual name. His half-brother, Dick Harrison, was also arrested, and possibly another brother. It was unclear in the reports whether they were referring to Dick Harrison or a third unnamed brother. I don't know if you have anything on him. Okay, so, he exists. So Dick was Jeff's half-brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an alias, blah, 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 blah. Half-brother. I think that was still Dick. Okay. okay. So I think it's just Dick. <laughs> it's just Dick. Just Dick. Now, Dick was actually terminally ill, was considered more of an accessory after the fact and not directly involved with the crime. I have another another source. So I did see that he was terminally ill, and I, I believe that 100%. But there was another source that kept referring to him, and I, I apologize for the verbiage on this, but this is what the article was referring to him as, a, a cripple. And so he, he wasn't very mobile and had some sort of debilitating terminal illness as well. It wasn't clear what disease he had or or what happened. I did see one report that said he had had a paralytic stroke. Oh. But the thing was, is this report was in like 1917 and said he had, he had suffered the paralytic stroke just a couple months back. So he may have had some other issues or maybe he'd had other strokes. It could be. It could be. It's very unclear. It's not specified. We really just don't know. But one way or the other, it's, it's kind of a shitty thing when Charles tried to throw his, uh, his brother under the train. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's so many puns I could be making and I'm not. So you got to let me have one or two Okay, that's there. fair. That's fair. Oh. <laughs> My show notes are titled Running Out of Steam. <laughs> Mine are the train toss and trio. Oh, I like it. I love alliteration. Oh, that might be the subtitle. You're just subtitling me all over the place. (laughs) So he, Charles, told authorities at first that he hadn't committed the robbery, but he knew everything about it. And he told authorities he'd been blackmailing his brother or brothers for money in exchange for keeping quiet, which definitely implicates his brothers in the crime. Throwing them under the train. Indeed. Then the manhunt stretched all over the country. They picked up members of what would become known as the Harrison Gang in Chicago, Atlanta, Denver, Grand Rapids, and Kansas City. Although it took some time. But when they finally get to Kansas City, they capture Henry Grady Webb. Now he and Charles Jefferson Harrison were said to be the leaders of the gang, or one of them was. My theory is... Harrison is twice as old as Webb. We do know that it seems like he was planning on getting out of the game. Yeah. I think he was kind of getting ready to toss the baton to Webb for leadership. And Webb had been gearing up for this all along anyhow. He'd kind of been the protege or had been planning on taking over at some point. That's really what it sounded like. So I kind of feel like they're both ringleaders. It's like I'm training him to be a ringleader. So I guess we're both ringleaders. Yeah, yeah. About these two and the Harrison gang. I'm going to start with Charles Jefferson Harrison. He was born around 1865, was from San Antonio, Texas, where he would later be captured. And in the early 1890s, he lived in Rome, Georgia, with his wife and two kids. A description of him from the Birmingham News. He is a rough-looking fellow, tall and spare-built, with a clean-shaven face. 
And that's funny because when they say a rough looking fellow, I immediately picture at least stubble. Yeah, scraggly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He had at some point worked for the railroads in some capacity, but he started robbing trains in 1891. Robbed a few trains around Alabama during that time period. One article says a postal clerk was killed in one of the robberies, but another article says the postal clerk's life was threatened. The second one, I believe, more because it's more a, a contemporary account. Yeah. Whereas the one that the postal clerk was killed was you know, 25 years down the line. And so I was thinking that it was probably a, you know, a 25-year-long game of telephone that we're talking about there. So on these robberies, he had help from his brother-in-law, Jim Brown, and his brother Dick was also in on some of the robberies. Dick was in his early teens. On one of them, they managed to get $2,000, and they just tossed Dick 20 bucks. Nice. Here you go, Dick. Here you go, Dick. So both Dick Harrison and Jim Brown, when they were caught for these robberies, said that Harrison threatened them into joining up with him to rob some trains. I mean... I'd say that, too, whether it was true or not. <laughs> if I got busted for something like that, not that I would, because I don't rob trains, no. shockingly. <laughs> they all ended up being brought in and charged. And in 1915, it said that he got 17 years. But at the time of the event, again, we have contemporary accounts that I believe more. They have him sentenced to two life terms for two charges of robbery. Meanwhile, Dick got five years, and Jim Brown got six years of hard labor. And, of course, Charles Harrison tried to escape by sawing out the bars of the jail. I feel like that's apropos. It is very much, yes. It didn't work. And it also, I guess, messed up the plumbing of the prison for a little while. <laughs> oops. He's just sitting there like, oopsie, my bad. But there are other ways of getting out of prison. Like presidential commutations. His sister and a Texas senator petitioned for his commutation. And the Alabama attorney general either he either was behind this fully or he just was like, yeah, let's, let's just reduce it to 10 years instead of two life sentences. And President McKinley was like, yeah, okay. That makes sense. He didn't sure. kill anybody. Yeah. Commuted his two life sentences to 10 years in 1900. And Harrison had some credit for good behavior. Bar sawing notwithstanding. I guess. So he served maybe maybe about seven years. It's hard to know exactly when he got out, but we can kind of estimate. He went back to Texas, living in his hometown of San Antonio and running a machine shop and auto repair place, the Pizza Hut Taco Bell. Pizza Hut Taco Bell. But he didn't go the straight and narrow. He basically started becoming kind of a train robbery mentor. And would also join in on the fun, too. He would be part of robberies. He would disappear for long periods of time. He, uh, I'm sorry, trained gangs to hold up trains. Oh, God. <laughs> and some said that the... And I'm holding back. I really I am. I know you are. <laughs> and some said that the membership in the Harrison gang stretched into as many as a dozen states. That's a big, very widespread gang. And that would make it so much harder to track them. Because it's not necessarily, oh, these are known associates because we see them in town together all the time. Yeah. They're spread out and they're all over. Yeah. And he had the same MO for years. He would hop on the tender while the train was taking on water. And one guy 
would get into the mail car, one guy keeping watch. So basically they would work in a gang of three and everybody had their assigned jobs and they just kind of ran like clockwork. Possibly he or someone else might have had men in high places. And this is not just our speculation, it was also reported in the press, literally the Sheboygan press. Sheboygan. Sheboygan. <laughs> it is even declared that one member of the gang was located in Washington and was furnishing information of the greatest value to the conspirators in keeping track of the great sums of money that were shipped from time to time to national banks in all sections of the country. He taught his gang a lot. Plan carefully. Make it run like clockwork. Practice. Spread a wide net with your targets so they went all through the south and, and some of the southwest, I believe. Yeah, you can't hit the same station every time or they're just going to come to expect it. Exactly, and then they're going to put more security there. You can't hit the same train, the same route. You can't hit the same railroad. You know, if you are constantly robbing B&O trains, I guess B&O is probably going to have some more guns on there. Yeah. Usually they got about 20000 to 25000 rarely more than that. And still said once he was caught that he had no money. He paid most of his ill-gotten gains to other people, especially his brother Dick, and apparently had either given it to his sister, who then spent, spent it excessively, or she took some. We don't really know. She's not brought up too much. After nearly 25 years of this, he was kind of getting sick of living life, you know, with one eye over his shoulder all the time. Your standard, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. So he uh, was probably close to 55, 60 around this time period. So there's also a lot of running around and traveling and everything. He's just tired. That meant that he was very receptive when Henry Grady Webb, the man caught in Kansas City that we mentioned a moment ago, came to him with a plan for a potential big haul. Because then it could be the last big haul for him. Yeah. And he could settle down. Last hurrah. Yes. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Big festive dinners! Big festive presents! Big festive traffic and hosting parties and never-ending Christmas music! Okay, I need a break already. The best way to get a break from all the holly jolly holiday action is to play Best Fiends. Best Fiends, the match three puzzle game that's free to download, has over 7,000 levels and is chock full of adorable characters that keep me coming back for more. That's the one, and I do believe it is level check time. What level are you at? I am on level 5,352. <laughs> I am on level 2,815. Obviously, we are obsessed with Best Fiends. Amber actually started playing when she opened up the app to check her level, and I believe is still playing. I might be, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You get to solve so many fun puzzles. You get to stimulate your brain even while you de-stress. And it makes time fly. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Let's talk a little bit about Webb and his plan. Webb started out as a plumber, but after cough, cough, coming into some money, hmm, robbing a train. He started selling auto supplies, plumbing supplies, and real estate. Either all of them or some of them. It sources very wildly. And was said to have, quote, 
handsome offices, automobiles, and a comfortable home. He was actually said to have, ironically, installed the plumbing system at the county jail in Montgomery, Alabama at one point. Irony. Yeah. I wonder if he, he fixed the plumbing at the last jail that uh, Harrison was in. Maybe. Who knows? He had a wife and two children. And this from the Parkersburg Sentinel. Webb is of fine appearance. He always appears in neat raiment. I should have looked up how to pronounce that. Is a good conversationalist, is intelligent, and the officer's state is well-educated. He is about medium height and build and is said to be as agile as a cat, a trained athlete, daring and nervy, but not one who would be suspected of train robbery. (laughs) He did come to be known as the financier of the Central Station train robbery, the great train robbery of 1915. And he was also the one who uh, tossed the assistant clerk of that train a coat and told him to get comfy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, gentlemen. I do kind of like him despite myself. Yeah, I do too. So the idea of this last big haul that he came to Harrison with was that they would rob a train closer to D.C. because at that point it would be more likely to have a large quantity of money. There was one more member of the gang, because of course we have gangs of three, and that was Eugene Diaz. Webb insisted on taking the lead, and that's kind of why it's generally thought that he was the connection to Washington. But he did all of the organizational work. He picked the train, he arranged the getaway, he he made all the arrangements. But then it was established that during the actual robbery, Harrison would still be in charge. And it seems like they got along pretty well. Quote, from their close association in many daring raids of this character in the past, the men had implicit confidence in each other. Each had his own particular work to do, and each went about it in his own way. So they just, they just worked well. Webb went down to the area, scouted everything out. He checked out depots from Parkersburg to Crafton, a range of about 100 miles. So he's being very careful about picking his spot. And then finally, he chooses Central Station. Then he got in touch with Harrison and Diaz and told them he, quote, had a good job waiting for them. Those two showed up a few days before the planned robbery. They camped near the town for a while beforehand. Harrison actually was already familiar with the area. His family had lived there at one point. They were not popular. They were, they were not. They were not given the, the key to the town, let's just say that. <laughs> and so they spent these couple of days rehearsing every step over and over and over until they had it down. And then they did. <laughs> you do the dress rehearsal, and then you do the actual play performance. performance. There you go, the performance. The paper said that they did know there was a large amount of money on the train, but they had to hurry, and so they weren't able to grab the big loot. Whether that be the one million that they missed out on that was also on the mail car, or the two million that was potentially on the express car, or both. Probably both. Yeah. I'm sure when they're reading the papers in the days after, they're like, fuck! That's exactly what I said in my notes. Because the papers are like, well, they weren't surprised when they found out they'd left a big chunk of change behind. And I'm like, yeah, they probably read the papers too. Yeah. (laughs) Where it's established, loosely, how much money they got and how much money they left behind. (laughs) So I'm sure there was a moment of, oh, crap. 
I mean, I feel like anyone would do that, though. I mean, if you commit a crime and then they're writing about you or there's broadcasts about you, I mean, you're going to watch. You're going to. Because, one, you want to know how close they are to catching you. Because it will tell you. The news will tell you. They have a suspect. All right, guys, we should we should move. Or they left this amount of money behind. God damn it. All right, so now we know for next time we got to take the express card, too. Exactly. Yeah, either to get one step ahead of the authorities, if possible, or to learn for the next time, if there's going to be a next time. Harrison and Diaz said that Webb actually held back 7000 from them when they were splitting up the loot after they finished the robbery. And then they traveled through the mountains for days before separating. And it was said in the interim that Webb, at some point, was quote, initiated into a powerful secret order, end quote, in Denver. That was about six months after the heist, and then the next day he just up and vanished. He was gone. With the wind. With the wind. And I'm just like, what, what is, I think somebody's trying to make the article more interesting. They're like, what would spice this up? Oh, yes, a secret order. Oh, a secret <laughs> order and a disappearing criminal. Yes. So it was 11 months of everybody working on this case. Before they got anybody, they get Harrison and his brother. At that point, the Sheboygan Press said that Harrison had been described by other papers as broken and decrepit. But the Sheboygan Press said that is not true. Quote, he limps slightly from an old gunshot wound received in one of his numerous holdups. And then they find Diaz at the YMCA in Denver. He was living there and also volunteering for the organization as well. And the Sheboygan Press tells us that Diaz squealed first. Of the three members of the gang that pulled the West Virginia holdup, Harrison was regarded as the balance wheel, the steadying influence that held in check the greater dash and enthusiasm of the others. Webb had brains, boldness, and executive ability. Diaz was the strong-arm man of the trio with physical power and undoubted courage, but he proved to be the weak link of the three. And within a few days after his arrest, he had practically confessed to the officials and given them many clues in running down the ramifications of the astounding series of robberies committed by his gang and the other interlocking gangs. That is one pair. That is only three sentences. Break it up. Come on, guys. At that point, they've got Harrison. They've got Dick. They've got Diaz. They're still looking for Webb. But they've already spent, the government has spent over $100,000 to catch them. So we're about the same amount that the men stole, or $2.6 million today. So this is getting to be an expensive endeavor. But they did recover $51,000 of the money, the $28,000 in Harrison's shop, or 33 or 50, then 16,000 that Diaz had hidden under a boulder in West Virginia. That that's a place, I guess. Yeah, it works. This was some miles from where they left the train. And then $7,000 that Diaz had given to another gang member in Detroit for circulation. So $5,000 of Diaz's share was unaccounted for. Back to Harrison. He's now charged. He's going to be uh, facing trial. Uh, His wife managed to get divorced from him in early 1916. Stated in her divorce forms that he was frequently absent from anywhere from two months to ten months. And then there's going to be a couple trials because they also find out about some more robberies. I actually had one source that said that it was uh, his ex-wife that told authorities where the money was hidden in his shop. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. She's like, this (laughs) asshole. He's never even here. 
Let me let me tell you what this motherfucker's been doing, all right? Yeah. All right. There's some money. You'll find some money under the... Go ahead, dig. Dig. There's money. There's money. Mm-hmm. Get your mm-hmm. shovels, boys. Yeah, like, <laughs> I just imagined her being like, fuck this man. I want him gone. <laughs> He's in jail. At least I know where he is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's no life to live for her. Well, and they had two kids as well. I mean, it's... I'm sure they're grown by now, but still. Yeah. She's been putting up with it for this long. The kids are grown. They're out. And she's like, I'm sick of living this life. Yeah, she probably just wakes up one morning and he's gone. And she doesn't know when he's going to come back. And then two or ten months later down the road, he shows back up like nothing happened. Yeah. That's annoying, if nothing else. It's annoying. She's not getting her rocks off. She's not getting any support at all. She's basically a single mom, basically unmarried. Except for every once in a while, her husband will, like, magically fucking appear. He doesn't seem like the type to be writing love letters while he's gone. Yeah, right. So she's she's probably had enough. She had enough 20 fucking years ago. And now she's like, you know what? I don't have to worry about hurting the kids' feelings anymore. I'm done. And this will also make it easier for her to get a divorce. Not a super easy thing to do back then. I know. Yeah, there you go. And she did testify against him. I know. I'm gunning <laughs> for her. I love her. Yeah. That clap. Now, I don't have a lot about that trial. It was in September 1916... I do know that Harrison's brother, Dick, had to stay in a hospital during that time period because he was going to serve as a witness for the prosecution. But it didn't seem to get very far before Harrison pled guilty. Yeah, that's what I had, too. It was like he was the, the prosecution's number one witness because he was, he was he's like, I'm fucking dying. Whatever. I'll tell you what happened. So it was just really bizarre because it was like, yeah, we have all these people set up that are going to testify. And then all of a sudden, everybody pled guilty. It's fine. Don't worry. I think once he saw what the prosecution had in store, he just figured, no, this is going to be a waste of my energy. I may as well just go to jail. I've I've had it coming (laughs) for years now. He was sentenced to 12 years, and the Sheboygan Press once again talks about his, his limp. But even this limp was less noticeable after he entered a plea of guilty and received sentence. So maybe he was playing it up, you know, for sympathy. The weight was lifted off of his shoulders. (laughs) Yeah. At this point, Webb is still on the run. Or rather, quote, has led the sleuths of the government on a merry chase. This is why I love old-timey newspapers, people. He was said to be, quote, a dangerous criminal and always goes armed with revolver and knife and will be a hard man to take if he has ever run to earth. So somehow, he's in Kansas City. And even more somehow... He's a medical student? He is. The Eclectic Medical University, under the name of Wallace White. The Eclectic. The Eclectic Medical. Oh, I. that feels very uh, much like he saw it advertised on the back page of an old-timey newspaper. <laughs> and then uh, the application was, was also in the advertisement and was just like your name and uh, check enclosed. So, I don't know. But uh, it just has a sound to it that doesn't sound very much like I want my doctor to be educated there. And that's fair. Yeah. He was also learning Spanish as he intended to go down to Argentina and practice medicine. I feel like he wanted to do this not to get into train robbery, but to have enough money to go to medical school and then to get the fuck out of Dodge. He's like, I want to do one and done. And then I want to go do some good with my life. Maybe, yeah. I think he was involved in more than one, though. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't one and done for him. 
But he wanted one one big take so that he could step away from it all and actually be, live on the up and up. See, I think that he was already living, everybody thought, on the up and up. I mean, he was considered a local businessman and a, a kind of was a part of, you know, the society circle and everything in the town he was living in when the robbery happened and then he had to get out and ended up in Kansas City. I figure that he was just looking for his next career. And yeah, he was probably going to get out of train robbery, but it was more a fact of, well, I can't go back there now. It's, yeah. it's too hot. I'm in too much danger of getting busted. So I need to go and, and find a new route, a new path for my life A to new take. career, a new language, and a new country eventually. Yes. I, yes, all of those things. And probably once he got down there, a new wife. <laughs> so he wrote to a friend asking him, you know, how's my wife doing? His wife and their two kids were still living back in Birmingham. And so somehow this letter was discovered. It's very unclear how either the friend ratted him out or the feds and, and the authorities found out about the letter some other way. Probably all the mail workers that were like, this motherfucker. <laughs> like they probably had like a most wanted mail carrier list in their trains now. And be like, wait, wait, isn't this... The address of the friend. They probably know everyone's address. Like, this is the wife. Let's open it up and read it. Oh, yep, he's asking about the wife. Because mm -mm. a lot of it was postal inspectors because this was considered part of the postal route. Yeah. Somehow they found out, and so the authorities plastered wanted posters all over Kansas City. And one of his fellow medical students saw the description or picture. It varies. And thought, I know that guy. So he made his way to the boarding house where Webb was staying, took another look at him, and then went right to the postal inspector's office. <laughs> he was like, I got, I got your guy. And you got my $1,000 reward. Right. They arrested Webb in class, which kind of cracks me up. If I were the professor in that class. <laughs> Excuse me, what, what is happening? Because if a bunch of cops break into your room as you're teaching your class, what are you going to say? Be like, not until the bell rings, guys. Yeah. The postal inspectors don't dismiss you. I dismiss you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of when I had a student who just up and left class halfway through. She was like, I got to go. My mom got into a fight at the bar. I got to go pick her up at the police station. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but she, she just said it in such a casual way that it was like, this is every Wednesday. <laughs> this really happens a lot. Yeah. I, I got to go. Yeah. I probably know her mom. <laughs> probably. So they gave the snitching student the $1,000 reward. That's about $21,000 today. And then we get this little anecdote that I kind of love. So that student had also found out that day that they'd struck black gold back on his farm in Oklahoma. Oh. He was having a damn good day. Nice. And he said in Webb's presence, well, this must be my lucky day. And so on hearing this, Webb... According to the Birmingham News, quote, took from his pocket a penny that he said he found that morning and picked up for luck. He flung it at the wall and wished the student better luck than his had been. <laughs> when they picked Webb up, he had $800 on him in unsigned bills. So again, we have the unsigned. It's kind of a little warning here. This is how he went about this. He actually stashed the money back in Birmingham. He had his plumbing supply business back there, so he hid 
the loot in packages of lead pipe that he called samples. Whenever he was low on funds, he would contact an employee to send him a sample of pipe. Under different names, probably. Oh, I'm sure. There's also a mention that one of his sample packages with his money, he was probably staying in a boarding house, had just come to the boarding house, got stolen at one point, and Webb thought that his landlady's young son was the culprit. Quote, Webb's actions in trying to find if, if the boy had the pipe caused Webb to be suspected of intending to kidnap the boy. He came near being detected. Whoa. <laughs> that was kind of a little, little side trip we took there. So was immediately after he was arrested, he wired his attorney. He already had him on retainer, had hired him a year before, almost like he knew he would need one. Funny how that works. He was taken to what I believe is a federal court because the papers say that the preliminary hearing was before a U.S. commissioner and he pled not guilty. Bail was set at 30000 and he didn't try to post it. That is $650,000 today. He was transported back to Alabama, accompanied by three post office inspectors and two deputy marshals. And on the way, they're, they're talking to him. They're trying to get information out of him. And he told them he'd actually had a couple close calls, including when he sat at a table at an Atlanta hotel with one of the very investigators who was interrogating him and chatted with him for like 20 minutes. He also pretty much confessed to his part in the Central Station robbery, but he was tight-lipped about involvement in any other train robberies. The papers said it seemed like he was probably going to go for a guilty plea, And Webb also said that his biggest regret was how all of this would reflect upon his children. They get him to Alabama and, quote, the prisoner thanked the officers for their courtesy on the trip, said the trip was a pleasant one, and then inquired of the jailer as to the sort of a table he provided for his guests. (laughs) He's got an attitude and I kind of enjoy it, I have to say. So Webb and Diaz actually face their charges the same day. Diaz pleads guilty to seven of the nine counts against him. He said he was not guilty of two other charges involving carrying a gun and jeopardizing the lives of the postal clerks. Diaz was sentenced to 10 years. Webb pled guilty to all nine counts that he was charged with and was given a sentence of 25 years in federal prison. Quote, when the court began the sentence, Webb became visibly affected. He wiped tears from his eyes and trembled, but later regained his composure and appeared to be himself again. And he doesn't really have any hope of a commutation or a pardon here like Harrison did back in 1900, because the court specified that if he were pardoned or released before the end of his sentence for any reason, he would have to face two other indictments for train robbery. So they were pretty much like, if you serve these 25 years, you're done. You're, you're good, but if you serve anything less than 25 years, we're going to come at you with everything we have. Guns ablazing. But then he was taken from Charlotte, and they were going to take him to the federal prison in Atlanta via train. Don't get this guy on a train. Come on. I know it's your only option, pretty much. It's your speediest option, at least. But seriously, 
because he had two deputy U.S. marshals guarding him and another prison, and, quote, while the train was standing in the shed at the local passenger station, Webb jumped through the window and escaped. So that happened. City and county police were searching for him, as well as, I'm sure, the marshals and probably the postal inspectors and pretty much everybody. Yeah, probably everybody else. This is a little bit of snark from the Montgomery Advertiser. Henry Grady Webb does not want a thing like a little old world war to crowd him off the billboards. One day he confessed to his crime as a train robber. The next day he jumped through a window and made good his escape. The Webb headlines thus become staple. The government offered again a $1,000 reward for him, although this time it's dead or alive. (sighs) Within a few days, he was caught in... North Carolina, about 50 miles from where he'd escaped. And it was said he'd pretty much been hiding in North Carolina ever since. He didn't, he didn't even get out of the state. Now, there were charges for other robberies that ended up in court. Dick Harrison was in court for his part in one of these robberies, still in what they called an invalid chair. And this was just a few weeks after Webb was finally caught on his little traipsing about North Carolina trip. So this was the point when it was said that Dick Harrison had suffered a stroke and was partially paralyzed. They said he didn't actively participate in the robbery, but he knew some stuff. And at this point, he did testify against his half-brother, Charles. I have this from the paper about the proceedings. Dick Harrison, once an athlete, with talents directed in the wrong channel, but now emaciated and dying slowly, but surely in a short time, raised his feeble and drawn hand to his eyes, crying as he took a glance at Jeff Harrison, his half-brother, against whom he had testified, when he could have been silent, allowing death to take him without divulging the truth. Tears came from Dick's eyes and rolled down his cheeks while spectators and Judge Clayton sympathetically exclaimed, I am so sorry for poor Dick. That just ended on such an interesting note, I felt. So sorry for poor Dick. Poor Dick. It was said also that he was pretty much ready to die. So that day, Charles Harrison actually said, they wanted me to kill Henry Grady Webb, but he never specified who they are. He said, yes, to kill a man, never have I done such a thing. A human life I regard very highly, and I did not agree to kill a soul. But I question that, because was it other members of his gang? that wanted him to kill Henry Grady Webb? Or was it maybe that contact in Washington that might have tipped them off? Thinking that, you know, Webb was maybe likely to squeal or maybe Webb had even said he would? Yeah. And he never did talk about that. I kind of do feel like it was whoever their information was coming from in in Washington. I really do. Like, all right, get rid of that guy. It's not going to work out. You need to get rid of him. I I, I don't kill people. No, you need to get rid of him. You need to get rid of them. I'm not going to tell you where the rest of the packages are. <laughs> yeah, it feels like they is just so vague here, and it's never specified. Charles also testified that he committed the robbery because Dick threatened to squeal if they didn't pull another job and give him money. So, so now they're blaming the guy in the wheelchair. Yes, very much so. Three other men had actually been convicted already for that particular robbery and sentenced to 25 years. So 
The Harrisons and Webb admitting to the charge meant that those three men were released from prison and pardoned by President Wilson. The story has more pardons, I swear. Yes, <laughs> lots of pardons. Yes. Charles is now sentenced to 25 years in prison. Now, as for in future years, really, the Harrisons and Diaz, they all just fall off the map. There's really not much after this case dies down and after the court hearings are over. It seems like either they go to prison, serve their terms, and just lead quiet lives afterwards, Die in prison is another possibility. Yeah. Dick Harrison seemed like he was going to die soon, or at least the papers said so. But we can follow a few breadcrumbs that Henry Grady Webb left. More than I expected, actually. In 1919, Henry Grady Webb's wife, Elizabeth Maybell Webb, went to court and had her divorce decree signed and custody of their two children given to her. She was a stenographer. They had been married for 10 years. Quote, okay, you ready for this? I'm ready. <clears throat> Two children were born of that union. Henry Grady Webb Jr., age 10, who is now in the insane asylum in Tuscaloosa. Oh. 10. 10, yes. And Elizabeth Maybell Webb, age 8, who is with her mother in Birmingham. In the 1920s, it appears that Henry Grady Webb was the editor of a publication called Good News that was issued by the Atlanta Penitentiary, quote, for the encouragement and educational advancement of the prisoners. Hmm. Now, unless there's a second Henry Grady Webb who also shows up in, like, Alabama and Georgia, which is possible, but it, the timeline seems to work here. Henry Grady Webb Jr. may have gotten his Bachelor of Science in Textile Engineering in 1938. The age kind of lines up with about the time he'd go to college. And in 1940, it appears that somebody named Henry Grady Webb Sr. died in Atlanta. That's where he was at the penitentiary. That makes sense. It seems likely that yeah. it's him. It does. It, se it seems likely that it was him. So, yes. Now, I kept on following the trail just a little bit. Okay. It's possible that Webb's grandson took after him a little bit and was also named after him. This is a cursed oh, name. This is a third. Yes, grandson. Oh. There's a Henry Grady Webb, age 18, who was arrested for three robberies in Atlanta in 1950. Oh. Having already had some run-ins with the law, he had been sentenced for two to three years for burglary in 1949 and was let out after four months. So he stuck up a few men at a hotel, essentially. One, he took up to his room for a drink and threatened him with a knife. He got $23 from him. A second man was kind of in a similar vein, robbed of $50, a diamond watch, and a coat. And this third victim got hit really hard, and it's kind of, there's some irony here, too. Meantime, a 70-year-old retired out-of-town railroad mechanic... Oh, you don't say. ...told police he mortgaged his home to raise $1,200 after becoming similarly involved. The mechanic said he arrived in Atlanta Monday and was registered at a downtown hotel. 
While eating near the bus station, he met an elderly man who suggested that they purchase whiskey and go to the hotel room. Once there, the mechanic said his newly discovered friend proceeded to show him the scar of an incision left from an operation. At that moment, the mechanic said, the door opened and two men entered. They identified themselves as secret service agents and promptly lodged charges for an immoral act. He said they offered to quietly handle the case provided he raised $1,000 for bond and another $200 for court costs. Returning home, he placed a mortgage on his house to raise the money, police were told. He returned to Atlanta yesterday and paid the money and came to police when he was told the charges had been dropped. And it seems like he identified this younger Henry Grady Webb as one of the men. Hmm. So yeah, that's what I have on him, but it's, it's, we don't know for sure. I feel like they were probably related. I feel like it's, it's such a, it's such a name, you know, it was, it was fairly easy to search because you have the, first of all, the three names. Webb is kind of common, but not super common. And then those three names put together and in those same general areas. Yeah. It just feels like it, it, it's it feels highly, right. Yeah. It feels right. So I'm going to say yes. This was, this was a troubled family. Yes. <laughs> so, I have a terrible recipe for you. Oh, good. So, and this is from a movie star. Oh. Yes. This is from a feature the papers were running in 1915 called Favorite Recipes of Movie Players. Ooh. So, Ethel Fleming is going to be giving us her recipe for stirred eggs. And it's kind of written more in article form, so I'm just going to read it as it is. I suppose anyone would say there isn't a new way under the sun to prepare eggs, but I doubt whether most cooks have ever tried just this particular recipe. It is excellent, as I have proved, and makes a nice change. I call it stirred eggs and prepare it like this. Take six eggs and three tablespoons of gravy. Chicken gravy is best. Then prepare enough fried toast from which the crust has been taken to cover the bottom of a flat dish, a very little anchovy paste, and one tablespoonful of butter. With these ingredients in hand, follow this method. Melt the butter in a pan. When the pan is hot, break the eggs into the fat. Stir in the gravy and the pepper and the salt to taste. Continue to stir this mixture very quickly, keeping it well up from the bottom of the pan. This should be continued about two minutes or until such time as the whole is a soft yellow mass. Then have the fried toast spread thinly with anchovy paste ready in a flat dish. Heap the stirred eggs on this. Serve before the mass has time to harden. First of all, when we're using the word mass in a recipe, I, I don't enjoy that. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And second of all, I know you're just spreading it thinly and everything. And I know that fish and eggs can actually go together well. Salmon omelets are delicious. So this is toast with anchovy paste topped with... Eggs, eggs scrambled with gravy. Don't forget the gravy. Yeah, I'm not sure what the gravy's really adding here. <laughs> I know, right? Maybe a little bit of salty kick. But yeah, it's like a breakfast open face sandwich. With anchovy paste. With anchovy paste. Yes. So, a little bit about Ethel Fleming. This recipe was published about seven years before she married Ray Kroc. He is the man who is known as the founder he did not found McDonald's, but he did turn it into a worldwide corporation. Oh. Many refer to him as the founder, although he bought out Richard and Maurice McDonald in 1961 
And after that point, he vastly expanded until it became what we know today. That same year, he and Ethel divorced, and he remarried to John Wayne's secretary just a few years later. And a few years after that, he divorced her and married a woman 24 years his junior. Meanwhile, Ethel died just a few years after their divorce. So maybe he was just looking for somebody who could prepare eggs just the way he wanted them. And that was not it. <laughs> after after uh, like three decades of marriage, he was like, you know, I hate these damn eggs. <laughs> you know, it was probably his fault, though. I'm just saying. Because... I, and, and this has actually happened to me. I have a rule that if I make something and you hate it, you need to tell me so I do not make it for you again. Yeah. That's the rule. And so this hasn't always happened. And I know that for a period of several years, several years, I was making a dish that I enjoyed and I thought everyone else enjoyed because they always ate it and said it was good. And they all hated it. And I'm like, the rule is... Tell me you hate it, and I will stop making it. Poor Ethel is over there with this weird anchovy egg mixture with gravy in it. Saying, this is my husband's favorite. And he's like, I fucking hate these eggs. <laughs> these are so gross. I choke them down every damn day. But, like, Ethel sounds like a sweetheart, and she probably thought she was doing something really good, and it sounds disgusting. Yes. Anchovies and gravy and eggs. Mmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they all thought that they were doing something good with these recipes. And it's true. I'm sure I've come up with a few horrifying combinations in my day. So we have a shout out to a new patron. So welcome to the Patreon, Kate First. Hello, Kate. And a happy birthday to patrons, Joel and Lynette. Happy, happy birthday. Look what I did. You made a list. I made a list of my bullshit, and I'm going to keep it here. So we can always have our list of bullshit. <laughs> always, yes. Here's some of my bullshit. I'll go through it real quick here. If you're on Spotify, put us on a playlist. I think you can also do that on Good Pods. I think they have playlists. I'm not sure. But there's also our tip jar there on Good Pods if you want to toss us uh, a buck or two, if you don't feel like being part of the Patreon. But you'll still get a shout-out. And there's also our PayPal the email address is oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can tip us that way. Leave us a buck on the old PayPal nightstand. Social media. We are oldtimeycrimey on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we have merchandise that you can find in a link via the show notes. And tell your friends. Tell all your friends. Tell all your friends about us and how we tell you about old-timey crimes and then about old-timey horrible food combinations. Yes. And also, if you have anything that you want to hear, if you want to buy us a book, you can do that. We do have an Amazon wish list. And if there's just something you want to know more about, please let us know on social media and we can take a look at it and see if there's enough for us to work with. Or you can email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com as well. So that is all of our bullshit. That is all of our bullshit. Which, I'm sure we have more bullshit, but that's all we're giving you right now. That's all I have on the list and all that you also remembered that I forgot to put on the list. <laughs> so I'm going to probably revise this list and have a new one next week. Sorry I fucked your list. <laughs> no, 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 no. You made it better. <laughs> you just reminded fucking it. Because I forget my bullshit. So what you doing this week? I am trying to get my house together. And I guess I'm going to decorate for the holiday. Yeah, I think I'm going to be doing some of that too. Get that tree up. It, for me, it's... Yeah. 
I always get kind of grumpy about decorating the tree until I, I manage to find some way to get excited. I don't know what it is. This time of year can sometimes be a little depressing. Because it's snowing and you only see the sunshine for four hours. Yeah, I think that might have something to do with it, yeah. But once I get going, I can get more cheery and, you know, you get some mulled wine in my hand, cinnamon-free, of course, <laughs> and put some good Christmas music on. And I'm back in business. So There you go. And plus, the, the tree, once it's all lit and everything, I find that very much cheers me. Uh, when it starts getting dark at four o'clock and I plug the tree in, I'm like, oh, okay. That's better. Like, why can't I have this year round? You could, <laughs> Except really. not the Christmas tree. <laughs> but you could. I mean, you could. You could just change it. So, like, leave it up into January and then switch it over to a Valentine's tree. And then a St. Patty's tree and then, uh, I don't know, a 4th of July tree. See, I think what I actually need is just the lights. So why don't I just put lights up in my living room like it's a college dorm room? Or that. Yes. Yeah. I might just do that. There you go. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Jackson, you're not taking the lights off the tree this year. You, well, you can take them off. Please take them off. But don't bother putting them in the boxes because I'm just going to string those bad boys up around the living room. Yeah. There you go. Or you could wait till right after the holidays and get them on clearance and then have new lights to put up around the living room and all your Christmas stuff intact. That's true. That's true because then I'd have to take the lights down in order to put them on the Christmas yeah, tree next year. You, you, you're smart. You're I, smart. I, I like am, that about you. I am lazy. I am a lazy <laughs> planner. And the, the way that I can get the least amount of work out of future me is the best method possible. I think it's important to do self-care for future me. Yeah. That's really the only self-care I have is for future me. It's not for now me. Now me is fucked. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But future me might be all right. All right. Well, that is our life this week. We're also, uh, well, if, if my hips are up for it, I'm going to attend your girls' night tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm exactly 50-50. There you go. So, so, yes, thank you for listening to our filthy train words. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Our sources this week were Mike Valenti on WDTV, West Virginia Archives and History, Roots Web, West Virginia Histories by Gerald D. Swick, Wikipedia, and from newspapers.com, the Sheboygan Press, the Choctaw Advocate, Montgomery Advertiser, Birmingham News, Aniston Star, and Kansas City Star. <laughs>